This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Alessandra Fenizia, who is an assistant professor of economics at George Washington University. Today we are going to talk about her paper, Managers and Productivity in the Public Sector, which was published in 2022 in Econometrica. Alessandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. It's my pleasure. So, Alessandra, prior to your paper, what did we know about the causal effect of managers on productivity? Not necessarily public sector managers, but just managers in general on productivity. Prior to my paper, there was a very rich and vibrant literature of managers in the private sector. And when I think of that literature, I think of the pioneering work of Bertrand and Score and the many more recent papers, and just to name one, the work of Oriana Bandiera and co-authors. Yet we knew very, very little about the role of public sector managers. And this distinction is actually quite important because unlike their private sector counterpart, public sector managers have much fewer tools at their disposal. So when you think of a public sector employees, their pay raises and their promotions are often scheduled as a function of seniority as opposed to individual performance. And in many countries, it's really hard to fire public sector workers. So again, managers had a very, very limited set of tools. And there were reasons to believe that although managers are really important in the private sector, maybe they might have not been as important in the public sector. And there, there is a very interesting paper written by Jenke Proper and uh, in 2019 that shows that, in fact, in the United Kingdom, the CEOs of large public sector hospitals don't seem to be able to uh, affect the performance of the hospitals they run. So, you know, there was reason to believe that maybe managers might not matter that much after all. And I was very glad that my paper could shed some light in, on this issue and show that at least in the setting I study, managers seem to have a meaningful impact on the productivity of the offices they receive. So let me make a couple of comments about what you said. You you started with uh, the paper of Bertrand and Shore in 2003, and then a recent paper of Bandera and co-authors. So both of these papers are about CEOs, yes. so managers that are like a, at the very top of the organization. Now, obviously, CEOs are going to have a lot of discretion about how to run the company. You know, they are essentially the ultimate decision makers as delegated by the board. So therefore, maybe like a slightly more relevant paper uh, to yours, given that you are looking at managers, but they are more like middle managers, uh, would be Lassier, Shaw, and Stanton. This is a paper that, that you referenced that is also looking at supervisors, but in a, in a call center. Yeah. But this is a situation in which they may also have more limited range of tools, you know, to, to affect their workers than, than CEOs have. The other thing that uh, came to mind is that I think that you, you are definitely correct that obviously managers in the public sector have less tools than their private sector counterparts. The Italian public sector, I'm sure, like the Spanish one, they're notorious for being impossible to fire anybody and all. The, the flip side of this is that the organization itself also has a more limited set of tools. For instance, imagine in a setting such as the one that you study that it is possible 
to somewhat measure objectively the performance of the productivity of workers. In a private sector, one could imagine a contract. In fact, economists make their living out of devising these theoretical contracts in which if you produce above a certain level, you keep your job. Otherwise, automatically, mechanically, as according to your contract, we're going to fire you. That implies that in the private sector, the manager doesn't have that, that many tools. But the organization in the private sector has a lot of tools because he can write a contract. In the public sector, you were saying that the manager doesn't have many tools, but the organization doesn't either, which means that maybe like the soft leadership skills that the manager in the public sector is able to bring could be potentially more important given that vacuum of tools that the organization has. Yeah, I uh, really agree with your comments. There is not a lot of direct evidence on this. There are some papers that bring some interesting indirect evidence. Mine is one of them. But I'd love to see a paper that really shows how the soft skills of managers matter in the public sector. Most likely they matter a lot. And I think that's a fascinating topic for future research. I will also want to say, let's... Let's go back to this later on. So the paper that you refer to, Janke, we can go back to this later, but I think that the main difference with respect to your paper will be a measurement of productivity difference. But we can talk about the difference once we understand what the setting in which your study takes place is. What is that setting? How does the organization that you're going to study work? So I study the Italian Social Security Agency. This is a large centralized government agency that administers virtually all the insurance programs and the uh, welfare programs uh, in the country. So what you should have in mind is that an enormous agency that processes a lot of paperwork, like unemployment benefits, maternity leave, unemployment and disability insurance, any sort of subsidy to firms or workers. And the beauty of this context is that the tasks that the workers perform are very standardized. And the Social Security Agency devotes a lot of time and effort into measuring these tasks as accurately as possible. And another couple of features that are really important about the setting, and I think we're going to mention later on in the chat, is that all the offices are subject to the same rules. They produce this homogeneous product, and there are virtually no differences in physical capital across sites. So that helps me to isolate productivity from change in, let's say, physical capital. What do managers do there? So in this setting, the managers oversee the workers and the workers process paperwork. The vast majority of their duties involve back office duties. So they are processing claims. They also spend a small amount of their time in the front office where they basically talk to citizens who come in and have questions on how to, for example, prepare the paperwork for uh, unemployment insurance. So, but these are the workers. But you were saying earlier that in the public sector, managers have a limited set of tools in this specific setting, what are the tools or the things that managers do that potentially could affect productivity? Yes. So manager potentially could select a different group of workers for their office. So they could hire workers. Potentially they could fire them. We're going to talk about, about it later. It's not really feasible in this context, but uh, that's a theoretical mechanism. They can also try to elicit more effort from their workers, perhaps by using a mix of stick and carrot. You know, they might insist 
inspire them. They might try to motivate them. They might reassign tasks within the office. They might try to train their workers, either formally or informally. And they can try to push against absenteeism, which is an issue in public sector organizations. So there are officers and branches. You were saying that they have more or less or the same amount of capital, but of course the size of these offices and branches is different, right? So obviously the ones with more people are going to produce more. Yes. So in the setting I study, there are about 500 offices. Roughly 100 of them are called main offices. These are much larger in size. They have about 115 employees per office. This contrasts starkly with the other 400 offices. They are much smaller in size. We're talking about offices with 16 employees on average. So you can imagine that in these smaller offices, there is much more interaction between the manager and the workers, and they interact on a daily basis, maybe a little bit more than in the larger main offices. What is the measure of productivity that you are going to study? Is this a measure at the worker level or at the office or branch level? So the innovation of the paper is that I'm able to construct an output-based measure of productivity at the office level. So let me be a tiny bit more specific about that. It's a ratio of output over the number of people that contribute to that output. Unfortunately, a main limitation of the study is that this measure is calculated at the office level. It would be fantastic if one were able to construct this at the individual level. There would be many more things we could study. But given the data I was able to collect, I was able to leverage this measure in a very novel way. So let me tell you what's special about it. The special thing is the numerator. So how do you measure output in the public sector? That's the big challenge that all the papers in this literature face one way or another. And so the way the agency measures output is actually quite clever. They, first of all, categorize all the possible claims that could come into an office. And they categorize them in very, very small uh, categories. Each of them is designed such that all the claims belonging to the category are very homogeneous. And there are more than a thousand categories. And then to each of these categories, they assign a weight, which reflects how complex that claim is. And that's because some of them are very quick to process. Some instead are very involved. So it's not a good idea to simply count them up and count how many claims has this agency processed this month. You really want to control for complexity. So the way they aggregate these claims is they count how many claims have been processed in each of these very, very fine categories, and they multiply this counts by the measure of complexity to be able to then aggregate it up at the office level and have a measure that is comparable across sites and also over time. So you have these 500 officer branches, productivity at the branch level. You want to estimate the causal effect of the manager on the productivity of the branch. How does the literature typically estimate this thing and what do you do as compared to what the literature typically does? So a very common tool is to use fixed effects. So to decompose the productivity measure or profits, if you're thinking of private sector firms, into a component that pertains to the manager and a component that pertains to the office. There are some offices that are intrinsically productive and others that are not. So I basically use this tool that has been used widely 
in the private sector literature, but not as much in the public sector literature. And I decompose log productivity into these two main components. I also control for time fixed effects. And uh, that allows me to understand how important is the contribution of managers, individual managers, to the productivity of the office relative to, for example, the office component. And the office component proxies for all the factors that are time invariant. So it could be the geography, like where is the office located, the social capital of the area, and the office composition as long as it doesn't vary over time. So you have a panel data set of offices and years or quarters? Quarters. Quarters. And then you are going to put their office fixed effects, like the I fixed effects, the individual office fixed effects, time quarter fixed effects. And in addition to this, you are going to put manager fixed effects, which is the main object of the study. Of course, putting manager fixed effects on top of the office fixed effects requires that you observe the same manager in more than one office and the same office having more than two managers. Does this happen often? So it happens in 80% of the offices. So in my sample, uh, there are 20% of offices that do not experience a change in leadership over the period I observe. So those offices don't really contribute to the estimation of the manager fixed effects, as you were suggesting, but the remaining 80% of offices do. So it turns out I have enough mobility, meaning that the managers rotate across sites enough to allow me to estimate these manager and these office fixed effects. But ideally, you know, the larger your data set is and the more moves you have, the better it is uh, for the estimation strategy. So your data goes from 2011 to 2017. So you have there like the seven years of data and then some managers move around. One thing in which the original Bertrand and Soar paper has been criticized a lot is the fact that the mobility of CEOs in their study across companies cannot be regarded as exogenous. For instance, if I am the board of a company that believes that out of uh, of the workers will be fired, I'm going to bring a specialist in firing people. If I want somebody to take risk, I'm going to bring a CEO with a special style or, you know, is this something that could potentially also affect the type of mobility that you are going to exploit here to estimate the effect of the managers? Yeah, so in principle, this could be a threat to the identification strategy. And just to be really precise about that, the identification assumption is that manager mobility is as good as random, conditional on office and time fixed effects. So let me give an example of a selection pattern that would not represent a threat to the, to the identification strategy, and then a couple of examples of selection pattern that you should be really worried about. So if managers sort on the permanent component of office productivity, for example, the best, the more productive manager want to uh, work at the most productive sites, or perhaps they want to work in a specific geographical area. None of these patterns uh, represent a threat to the empirical strategy because I'm controlling for office fixed effects. However, what you should be very concerned about is that managers could be potentially sorting on the error term. And that means that managers could be sorting on a comparative advantage. Or as you mentioned, it could be that the social security agency might bring in a very competent and talented manager when an office performance is deteriorating over time. Or perhaps they might push out manager after a negative productivity 
shock. So all these patterns are potentially threats to the identification strategy. And what I do in the paper to try to address these concerns is that I spent some time describing how complicated the manager rotation is and the institutional background that relates to that. And there are many limitations on what managers can do and where they can move, when they can move. So that to some extent mitigates some of the concerns. But what I think is more compelling is that I'm able to use a set of diagnostic checks that have been developed by the two-way fixed effect literature that basically show that none of the type of sorting patterns that you should be worried about seems to be concerned in the setting I study. So let's go now. We can go back to this uh, diagnostic patterns that you mentioned later, but let's go now to the main result. Imagine that you run this regression, you estimate a bunch of fixed effects, one for each of the managers who move. What do you find there? How can you say that this matters or doesn't matter because you end up with just a bunch of numbers, one for every of the managers that moves? Yes. So in the first part of the paper, I perform a decomposition of log productivity. And what I can show is that manager fixed effects explain roughly 9% of the variation in productivity I observe. So this is a substantial amount. However, This is roughly a third as much as the share of the variance in log productivity that is explained by the office fixed effect. So what this means is managers matter, but the office component is very important in this setting. So there are some offices that are intrinsically productive and some that uh, are not. The first result is, okay, managers matter. And that's great. But even if you perform a variance decomposition, I think a natural question is, okay, so what do they do? Like, how do they matter? And that brings me to the second part of the paper where I try to explore the mechanisms through which manager might have an impact on office productivity. And I exploit the rotation of managers across sites. And what I see is that when a better manager comes in, the productivity of the office increases. But surprisingly, what I find is that the overall output at the office level does not increase in a statistically significant fashion. However, the number of workers that are assigned to the office decreases sharply as a better manager takes charge. So this is surprising because when we think of a highly productive manager, we we think of somebody who's able to increase output. We don't think of somebody that comes in and manages to get rid of people in the office, or at least this is not what what I had in mind when I first ran those regressions. But it turns out that at least in this setting, the very productive managers are those who are able to push the unproductive workers out. Let me comment on how managers matter later on and stick still to the do they. So I I asked you earlier, how do you know that they matter from a quantitative perspective? And you said that you do a variance decomposition. I don't remember this from the Bertrand and Shore paper. Instead, what they do and something that you also do is to just add the time and office fixed effects and get an R squared of whatever number it is. And then on top of this, you add the manager fixed effects and you see that the R squared, the adjusted R squared, increases by 7%. That is something that I can explain to my undergraduate students and they really understand. Why is looking at it in this way 
not sufficient? Why do you need to do the variance decomposition on top of just seeing that they explain a lot of the variation in productivity? So, you know, I do like the exercise that you just described. It's kind of standard in the literature. Many papers have done it, so I do it too. What I think the variance decomposition brings on top of that is that it allows you to quantify the extent to which managers matter relative to the permanent component of the office. So one drawback of the exercise you described is that you cannot really put a number on these two parts. And you could start by including first the office fixed effect and then the manager fixed effect, or you could do the the opposite exercise. And they would give you slightly different numbers. So this is the reason why I prefer the the composition, but both exercises are valid and they're fundamentally exploiting the same type of variation. So they're kind of giving you the same answer. Let me go back to the concerns that we may have about the endogenous mobility of the CEOs. So you mentioned there like a couple of examples. So am I correct in thinking that another example would be one in which a good manager increases the productivity of a good office by more than it would increase the productivity of a bad office? Or vice versa. I mean, it doesn't that that it is like a they like that good managers like good offices, but precisely because their efforts have a bigger consequences there. That would also be a concern, correct? Absolutely. This would be uh, the same thing as saying that managers sort based on their comparative advantage. So it means that managers don't have the same impact on all offices. They are particularly effective in some of them, but not others. So something else that you do in the paper is to run the regression that I just described, the, the baseline regression that has office, quarter, manual fixed effects. You come up with a certain R squared. Yeah. Uh, and now you say, okay, let me put on top of this the office slash manager match effects, which is a fixed effect for every combination of office and manager, as opposed to having a separate effect for all the offices and a separate effect for all the managers. So there are more, right? Because if a manager has been in two offices, the manager has two fixed effects, one for each of the two offices. What do you find there? And what do you think that tells you about the possibility of this uh, matching on comparative advantage? I really like the, the exercise you mentioned, because what you can do is that you can compare the R-square and the R-square adjusted of the baseline model. That's the model that includes only the manager and the office fixed effects and the time fixed effects with this more saturated model where you have the office times manager fixed effect and the time fixed effect. So you compare this to R-squared and if the second model has a much higher square than the first one, that suggests that the match components are quantitatively meaningful. So it means that some managers are particularly good at some offices, but uh, not at others. So this doesn't tell us much about the sorting, but it tells us how big is this comparative advantage problem? Do we have an issue? And in the setting I study, it doesn't look like that this is a major issue, but in other settings, it might be. And, you know, I think economists are 
really excited about the idea of these match components and they tend to think they are everywhere and they are probably very common in reality. And this is something that researchers should keep in mind when they estimate a model like the one I just described that is linearly additive in two components like the manager and the office. And if there are these match components, that model is not an appropriate representation of reality. So it's important to go through the diagnostics checks to try to understand whether the data shows this feature or not. And if it does, there are other models that are very well suited to deal with that, just not a two-way fixed effect model. This is a parenthesis here that I want to open, but let me politely disagree with you on whether checking this diagnosis, doing these diagnostic checks in practice matters or not. This is obviously my subjective view. Half of the time, actually, I would say even 90% of the time, you are doing all these robustness checks and diagnostic checks and everything because some economist 15 years ago had some crazy about the, uh, in some theory paper about some convoluted mechanism that could be going on. And that means that every empirical researcher from that point onwards <laughs> has to look at this. You know, but in practice, at least my experience is that all these things are very unlikely to matter, but maybe we have had different experiences. Okay, good. So I want to now go back to the other issue that you mentioned, that is a potential issue with your estimation, which you said is some type of like endogenous mobility that comes from the fact that maybe when an office is suddenly doing badly, we change the manager. Or maybe an office is trending downwards, we change the manager or upwards, it doesn't matter. There, I guess that, you know, in my generation or even previous to my generation, used to be called the ascent filter dip, right? Which was like a prior to something happening, there was like a change in the dependent variable. Yeah. That was predicting the independent variable rather than the other way around. The standard way to check whether this type of endogeneity is present in your dataset is to do a leads and lags analysis or an event study. What do you do you do there? And what do you find? Yeah, so I follow the standard that you just described. And I do an event study in a couple of different ways. And both of these event studies show that there is no evidence of an ocean filter dip. So it doesn't look like the office is doing poorly right before the change in leadership, especially when a very good manager is brought in. I also uh, go through a slightly different exercise in the paper where I look at the productivity growth in the quarters leading up to the change in leadership. And I regress the future manager fixed effect on the growth in the office productivity in the quarters prior to the change in leadership. So the idea behind this, this exercise is that future leaders cannot have an impact on the outcomes of the office before they take charge. So any correlation between uh, these two variables will be indicative of the fact that managers sort in ways that are very problematic for my identification strategy. And it doesn't look like that this type of sorting is happening in the context I study. So I have two questions with respect to this. The first one is, how are these two analyses different? Because you are still regressing the fixed effect of the manager on the productivity or the change of productivity. In one of them, you are putting one of the variables on the left-hand side and the other one in the right-hand side. And in the other analysis, the other way around, you know, but still you are correlating them to each other. My second question has to do with 
where does the manager fixed effect come from? And this is for the following. If you have a regression, a model in which the independent variable is some variable that is there already in your data set, you can regress whatever, the outcome, productivity on that variable. You can put leads and lags and so on. It's not a problem. However, in your case, the manager fixed effect is not in your data set. You calculate it from your data set. So therefore you are generating it from the same regression on which later on you are going to run this event study. So clearly if a manager has a positive fixed effect, this is the result of the fact that whenever he joined, he increased productivity. So you are generating the independent variable in a way that is circular. It is impossible that you find afterwards that that manager fixed effect decreases productivity on the new office on which the manager is moving. Yeah, so you uh, really have two very good points. So let me answer the first one first. So I agree that the two exercises we described are very similar and they use a very similar type of variation. The reason why I like the exercise where I regress the future manager fixed effects on the uh, past characteristics of the office is that it gives you a sense of whether manager sort, not only on productivity growth, which would be a challenge, but for example, also on office fixed effect or on geography. And that exercise shows you that there is some evidence of managers sorting on these two dimensions. Now, that is not a threat to me empirical strategy, but it really tells you you should have office fixed effect in your regression. Getting to your second point, this is a crucial part of the paper. So as you mentioned, imagine you could just measure uh, manager effectiveness and the change in manage- manager effectiveness that results after a change in leadership, then you would just run the event study and that would be the end of the exercise. But the world I worked in is slightly more complicated. You fundamentally don't observe manager ability and you have to estimate it in the first step. So what you might think as, you know, what would be a naive solution? Well, the naive solution is I have this manager fixed effect. And as you said, you just plug them in. And that brings us back to the circular problem you were mentioning. So just to be slightly more precise about this problem, what what might be happening is that if there are idiosyncratic productivity shocks, those shocks might affect both my measure of managerial talent and the outcome of interest. So if I were to run this naive event study, what would happen is that the coefficients I would recover would be biased because they would pick up this mechanical correlation, this circular argument that you were mentioning before. So in order to address this challenge, what I do is that I have to develop a leave out procedure that allows me to estimate the manager fixed effect on a separate periods and then evaluate the change in the outcome of interest on a subset of periods that were not used in the estimation of the manager fixed effect. And this procedure allows me to break this mechanical correlation and this circular type of argument that would be clearly problematic because it would show a stronger relationship than there is in reality. So this was an issue that is related to Another one that appeared in episode 21 of the Visible Hand podcast. So David Silver, like around a year ago, had a similar problem. He had to estimate the peer effects and then use the peer effect for something else. And then he was concerned that, okay, so if I estimate the peer effects and then I use the same sample to 
put them on the right hand side, that's a generated regressor is going to create a bias of the type that you're describing. What he was using there and the simplest type of solution that one could imagine to this problem is to use a split sample approach. That is, you take your sample, split it into two parts, use the first part to calculate those regressors, in this case, the fixed effects that you are interested in, and then you take those coefficients and you plug them into the second part. Is this, broadly speaking, what you are doing here, with the exception that you don't have 19 million observations, as David Silver had? Therefore, he could afford the luxury of doing that. But instead, you have only like 500 branches, six years, limited mobility. At most, maybe a manager moves once or twice. So you cannot really go around estimating these things without of noise from half of the sample to plug it into the second. Yes, this is correct. And a technical challenge that I face is the fact that I have, I'm able to meaningfully compare the manager fixed effects only within the subset of managers that are directly or indirectly connected by worker moves. So in technical jargon, we would say that we can compare managers only within the connected set. So if I were to simply split my sample in half, I would end up breaking many of those uh, connected sets. Now, that is a somewhat technical issue, but I think the idea behind the exercise, this exercise is exactly the same idea that uh, many other authors, including David Silver, used, which is the split sample approach. I just have to be a little bit more careful because in my setting, I have fewer observations and much fewer offices. So we're going to move into the how in a second, but let me just go back to the issue that I mentioned uh, of your comparison with the paper by Janke, Proper, and Sadun, which you said uh, studies the effect of uh, the managers of a public hospitals, it's actually public trusts, okay, like uh, hospital trusts in the United Kingdom, they don't find an effect. I think that here the main difference may be that your measure of productivity is precise enough such that so that it's not contaminated by a lot of uh, measurement error. I think that in their case, hospitals do so many different things. It is very difficult to control the type of problem that arises, maybe a certain area is becoming healthier over time or less healthy. There's a combination of heart attacks and cancer and all. It's going to be very difficult in their setting to pick up something relative to the very homogeneous setting in which productivity is measured in exactly the same way across the board that you have here. I agree with everything you've said. And I would add that another difference is that they study very large hospitals. So they're looking at the top manager in institutions that have a hundred, uh, sorry, that have about a thousand employees, if I remember correctly. The offices I study are much smaller. So it is also entirely possible that managers in the public sector might have a larger impact on smaller units than when they have to run one of these extremely large hospitals that produce these multifaceted output uh, that is then hard to aggregate, as you were mentioning before. So you have already mentioned it, but can you remind us, you want to study now, how is it that some managers manage to increase productivity? What is it that you can measure and what is it that you find? 
So we mentioned earlier that there are a variety of mechanisms through which managers can impact the productivity of the office they receive. Unfortunately, because I rely on administrative data, I can only observe a subset of those mechanisms. So what I do first is that I decompose the impact of managers on office productivity into the impact on output and the impact on the number of workers that contribute to that output. So when you think of productivity, it's a ratio. And so I decompose the impact impact on uh, the numerator and the denominator, uh, that ratio. So what I find is that when a better manager comes in, the numerator, which is the output at the office level, doesn't increase in a statistically significant fashion. So I do find an increase, but it is very imprecisely estimated, and I'd rather interpret uh, this coefficient, this coefficient uh, conservatively. This is quite surprising, given the fact that the number of workers that produce that output decreases sharply. So then, like a very natural question is how it is possible that in such a constrained environment where managers cannot really fire workers, they manage to reduce the office size and keep the same productivity level as before. So what I do is that I can dig into the personal records of these workers and try to understand what's going on at the office level. Like, is it that movers, uh, that is, sorry, is it that they are maybe transferring uh, workers from one office to the other? Is it the case that they are firing these workers? And what I find is that in line with the expectations of people that know these setting very well, there is no impact on hiring and firing. That's because uh, managers have very limited ability to do so in this setting. But there is a sharp increase in the number of retirements around the time the new manager comes in, whenever the new manager is more productive than the manager who has left. So what it looks like is that more productive managers are able to push out some senior workers around the time they come in. So in the in the first few quarters, they kind of clean uh, clean house, and uh, you know that might seem very surprising because managers in the public sector cannot really negotiate an exit package or a golden parachute, and they cannot force these workers to leave. But these results are in line with anecdotal evidence showing that the older the senior employees typically are assigned more prestigious tasks that come with additional responsibilities, but also additional compensation at the end of every month. And there is anecdotal evidence suggesting that more productive managers reallocate these more prestigious tasks from the senior colleagues to the younger uh, employees when they come in and they try to reshape the office and they try to reassign tasks tasks and improve the office performance. So as a result of this reallocation, it seems plausible that the senior employees who no longer have these prestigious tasks might decide to leave either because they're slighted or because they lose this additional compensation. Let me make a, a few comments with respect to what you have uh, just said. So number one is these regressions have the exact same shape as the, the previous regressions, uh, correct? They are essentially a panel of offices and quarters, productivity, or something else, output, employment, the amount of retirements, etc. Some Some office quarter level characteristic on the left hand side, then you have the generator regressor that we mentioned earlier, but they have exactly uh, the, the same shape. So then you find output doesn't change, but the productivity that I had earlier changes because even though the numerator did not move, the denominator went down, which is that the employment goes down 
as a result of afterwards you find the other workers retiring. One first comment, and this is not a criticism, okay, because the results are what they are, and from the perspective of the manager, this is still productivity and everything. But as it happens, my parents happen to be ex-public sector workers, and they retired, but the pensions in Spain are so generous that the wage bill of the Spanish state barely went down when my parents retired, right? Which means that, you know, these retired workers, yeah, of course, they are not part of the employment of the, of the branch, but if Italy is anywhere close to Spain, they are still contributing, you know, to the expenses of the Italian state. So from a welfare perspective, again, this is, has, it's not really like a, doesn't speak directly about whether this productivity of the office or not, but from the welfare of the Italian state, productivity may not have gone up or, you know, because the denominator hasn't moved that much. The, the other thing that I wanted to say is that it will be great to have, you know, more direct evidence on the mechanism of the assignment of tasks that you mentioned. I understand it is a challenge with the type of administrative data that you have, which uh, there is like a, a balance here uh, of measurement, of a granular measurement of what people do in the workplace, as opposed to having big data sets, you know, and there is, you know, it, it, it is it is rare, impossible even, I would say, to find both. But we know from other papers that task allocation is a mechanism through which managers matter. It is plausible that they uh, might, may matter here, but it's difficult to tell other through, than through anecdotes. That is correct. And I wish I had some direct evidence of uh, the anecdotes I was telling earlier. Unfortunately, the data I have doesn't contain any direct measurement of that. But I agree, it would be great to do that. And the other thing that would be really great for all the people who are listening to the podcast and thinking about senior problems, I think in some cases, survey data can be very valuable and can complement administrative data very well. So what I would have been great, uh, and I tried to do it, but unfortunately I wasn't given the permission to do that, is that I wanted to run a survey and I wanted to A, ask the managers, what do you what do you do in your day-to-day, what they are, uh, you know, to get the sense of the manager managerial practices. And it would also have been great to learn how the employees feel about these changes. And I think that is also a scope for future research. This is an exciting area of research. There are a lot of people working on interesting problems at the intersection of management and public sector and how can we make the public sector more efficient. So whoever is drawn into this area, thanks to this podcast or uh, thanks to their personal interests, I hope, you know, I think there is a lot of scope to learn a lot of interesting things about a sector that is large, is important, has important implications in terms of economic growth, in terms of inequality, the redistribution of resources. And it's an area that hasn't been explored uh, as much as the private sector. So fascinating, a lot of new data and not many people working on this. So we need more. Thank you, Alessandra, for coming to the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, interactory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.